Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today's episode is a Q&A where I answer questions sent to me by supporters of the podcast. Usually I only release these episodes to members only, but I'm releasing this one to the public because I felt the questions were particularly good. If you have any burning questions you'd like to ask me, and if you'd like to be a part of the next members-only Q&A, you can join the Coleman Unfiltered community and become a member today. And you can do that by going to www.colemanhughes.org unfiltered. So with that said, let's get to the first question. Question number one. I'm interested to hear your opinion on the Citizens United decision of 2010 in the Supreme Court. I have a theory that this corrupted politics an order of magnitude, at least by ensuring that only candidates with millions of support in dollars from corporations would be able to participate and virtually promises that when elected, and virtually promises that when elected, I think that's an error, uh, well, that when elected, candidates will have no choice but to act in a way that benefits the donors that help them get elected. Do you agree with this assessment? Okay. So great question. Citizens United, of course, was a, a decision made in 2010 by the Supreme Court to treat spending in political campaigns and in politics in general as a free speech issue, which meant that there was no longer effectively any limit to how much a corporation could donate to politics. Whereas before 2010, there was a limit to, to how much you could donate. And there has been research that uh, I've looked into a little bit on the effect of Citizens United. And my basic assessment of that research is that, you know, as much as I would love to be able to say that money in elections and lobbying in Washington is the reason or one of the main reasons why our politics in this country are so jacked up, the research actually doesn't support that view. So two things. One is that money actually has less influence over election outcomes than you might think. And secondly, money has less influence over how politicians vote than you might think. And I know both of those things are counterintuitive. They're counterintuitive to me. So I will link to a very good New York Times article which substantiates those claims. But I guess to make it slightly less counterintuitive, Trump famously spent twice as much as Hillary did, fully twice as much, which is pretty rare in the past 20 years of American politics for any disparity in presidential candidate spending to be that large. Hillary spent literally twice as much as as Trump did in 2016 and, and still got beat. So. This is one of those areas where pretty much every problem you could think of is a real problem, right? Like occasionally corporations do straight up buy a politician's vote. Occasionally candidates do just outspend their way over other candidates uh, into an election victory. But if you were to solve that problem, if you were to, if you were to roll back the clock to the pre-2010 standard on Citizen United, you would notice remarkably few changes in the overall character of our politics. You would notice very few changes probably in the level of polarization, in the level of congressional gridlock, in the level of politicians voting against the interests of the people. I, I would love to be able to say again that that's the source of the problem because it presents not an easy solution, but at least an intelligible solution. But I think the research, unfortunately, doesn't support the view that that's the main or even a really large problem with our politics. And once again, I will include the uh, at least one of the articles, one of the good articles that I'm, I'm referencing in these points so you can judge it for yourself. Okay. 
Question number two. Even if one tends to be conservative, how could anyone vote Republican in 2022 given the GOP propensity, which has become a cultural norm in the party, to lie about elections if they don't win? Shouldn't that alone severely reduce one's confidence in virtually any Republican candidate? Okay, another good question and something I'm sure a lot of people are thinking. So when Trump didn't commit to a peaceful transition, it was in one of the debates with Biden, I can't remember which one, the the anchor basically asked him straight up, would you compete, uh, would you commit to a peaceful transition? And his answer wasn't yes. It was hemming and hawing and saying, you know, not necessarily. And all of that raised an immediate red flag for me because, you know, as important as the candidates in any particular election are, what's more important to me is that they play by the rules of the game, right? So if you don't agree to play by the rules of the game, that makes me more nervous than almost any plausible policy position any candidate could have. Because once again, the point of the peaceful transition of power, the point of democracy and electing a new leader every four years is not just so that we get leaders that institute policies that we the people want. That's one point of democracy. A more fundamental and arguably more important point of democracy is to act as a kind of discharge of the anger that people are going to feel, right? When you have a monarchy, what happens when the people get angry? They get angry enough, they devolve into revolution, they overthrow the king, and there's bloodshed in the streets sometimes for years. There's uncertainty as to who, who is rule, who's ruling. A lot of the point of, of democracy is to act, you know, for, for these elections every f- few years, to act as a peaceful discharge of energy and resentment. And when candidates don't commit to that, it makes me very nervous because I, I think that's one of the most important features of democracy full stop. Okay, so having got that out of the way, and also having having said that what Trump has done on this point is just absolutely egregious, actually trying to pressure Republicans to overturn votes, to declare the election stolen, using his, his power and clout as president to do that, and, uh, and, and all the rest, it's all horrible. But to get to this specific question. The questioner here says, how could anyone vote for any Republican, given that this, you know, lying about elections is a GOP propensity, to to use the words of the questioner. So that I think is unfair. I think, you know, it's it's one thing to, to note how cowardly most Republicans have been even though they know, most of them know that Trump lost pretty much fair and square, how cowardly they've been in, you know, outside of Liz Cheney and a few others from actually standing up for democracy against party, right? Putting principle over party. Very few of them have done that. It's one thing to observe that. It's another thing to say that because Trump tried to steal the election, therefore every Republican is going to try to steal the election. That, I think, is an invalid conclusion to draw. I mean, you should remember just how atypical a Republican Trump was and is in some way still. I think it's far too soon to say that the Republican Party is now the party for all time of stealing elections, right? I think that would be, I think that's, that's jumping to conclusions. The last thing I'll say about this is Democrats should be, should be a little bit less holier than thou on the issue of claiming that elections have been stolen. Uh, a few things to, to remind people of on this issue. How many Democrats believed that you know, Al Gore really won the election in 2000? Right? 
Now, that election was admittedly much closer. But still, there were lots of prominent Democrats and probably lots to this day that will say that that election was stolen. And you can't really say that that's... If you're really going to lampoon anyone who's claiming an election was stolen, you're going to have to lampoon a lot of those people too. Another thing to remember, at one point, two-thirds of Democrats, something like that according to a YouGov poll, I remember, believed that Russia had tampered with the vote count to elect Trump in 2016, right? Which is pretty close to a belief that Russia helped Trump steal the election, right? That was a pretty widely subscribed belief in roughly late 2016, early 2017. You also have an example like Stacey Abrams, who at least as of 2020, I haven't checked since, was still claiming that Brian Kemp had stole the governorship of Georgia from her, even though she lost by like 50,000 votes two years prior. All this to say, Democrats should not think themselves innocent of this particular sin just because Trump has done the most important, most egregious example of it. So, so that's all I'll say about that. Okay, question number three. What do you recommend someone in the lower echelons of middle management do in an environment like we're in to foster an approach that's focused on solutions that don't use race as a proxy for the variables that we're trying to improve? In case it matters, I'm a middle-aged white man in a department overwhelmingly full of women, including virtually all senior leadership. Okay, so that's the question. What do I recommend to someone in middle management specifically do to focus on solutions that don't use race as a proxy for the real things we're trying to improve? So, you know, without having more details, it's hard to actually say, but, um, and I definitely can't really speak to the challenges of middle management in particular. But what I would say to the general point is that certainly with governments and often with other organizations, we have ways of measuring whether people and how much people are financially struggling that are race blind, right? Like the government, they have your tax returns. If you run a business, many business, uh, many programs to qualify for financial aid for the government require you to submit things like your gross receipts from the past year or, um, you know, the, the dollar amount of, the debt that your business is in, it's absolutely normal and commonplace for the government to ask this kind of information and to have this kind of information and to act upon the specific details of that information, right? Like if you're applying to financial aid in college, if you're, you know, if, if you're a restaurant owner, if you were a restaurant owner applying for pandemic time aid, all of that, you know, you would literally tell the government how much money you need, how much money you're in debt, how, you know, what the difference between your gross receipts last year and this year was, and they would give you that amount. So it's not at all beyond the capability of, of organizations to use, to use finances as, um, you know, as a proxy for how much an individual or a business is struggling. It's just that it's more convenient ideologically to use race and it's more trendy. So, and it closes you off ever to any accusations of not caring enough about black people or not caring about racism, right? It, it inoculates you against that accusation, which is unfortunately is socially very important for people in a lot of different situations. As most of you are aware, self-censorship is a major problem on U.S. college campuses right now. In 2021, 63% of college students agreed that the climate on their campus prevents people from saying things that they believe. Heterodox Academy wants to change that. HXA is a nonpartisan nonprofit founded by social psychologist and recent guest on this podcast, Jonathan Haidt. HXA seeks to improve the quality of education and research in higher ed 
by increasing open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement on college campuses. HXA's 5,000-plus members come from institutions around the globe and hold viewpoints from across the political and ideological spectrums. They all agree on one thing. Great minds don't always think alike. If, like me, you believe that higher education needs less cancel culture and more good faith dialogue, visit heterodoxacademy.org slash Coleman to subscribe to HXA's newsletter, and if you're a higher ed professor, administrator, or student, to sign up for a free membership. If you care about the impact our universities have on our society and democracy, Heterodox Academy must be on your radar. Visit heterodoxacademy.org slash Coleman to learn more. Okay, next question. All right. What is my view of historically black colleges and universities, aka HBCUs? How do these schools square with my vision of colorblindness? And how do, how do I view the dire financial straits that these schools are in? Okay, historically black colleges and universities. What do I think of them? And how do I square my thoughts about them with my general vision of a colorblind society, a race-blind society? So this is a great question. Um, my father and sister both went to historically black colleges. One went to Howard University and one went to Spelman. And uh, from what I know, they had really great experiences at both of those schools. Th- these schools are beloved by many who, who go to them. And so in general, I, I feel towards them like I would feel towards any, any other college. But uh, obviously the, the questioner, what the questioner is getting at is, Basically, these are historically black schools. They're, they're black schools. And is it okay for, do I think it's okay for a school to just be a black school, right? Isn't that essentially some kind of racial discrimination or unhealthy race obsession or, or something of the like? Okay, so, I mean, I, I have to imagine that's where the questioner is coming from. The first thing to note here is that none of these schools are entirely black. Everyone's allowed to apply to these schools. They have white students, they have Asian students, they have Hispanic students. I, I looked it up and, and, for example, Howard University, which is the flagship historically black college in the country, is only 68% black. So, you know, 32% white, Hispanic, and other, it, it's, you know, White kids at this school basically just, they have four years of the experience that black people have in, in, in most spaces, which is just being a minority, right? Just not, you know, being roughly 10% of the people in the room. And, and so these schools are not excluding anyone on the basis of race. There are you know, white professors. I, you know, I think some of these schools have even had white presidents in, in, not too, in the not-too-distant past. I, I could be wrong about that. So I would say in general, there's no conflict between supporting the existence of historically black colleges and universities and also supporting a general principle of race-blind college admissions, which I do. My impression is that because these schools are known historically and socially to be majority black schools, that fewer non-black people apply to these schools to begin with. And, you know, that is not different in principle from, you know, there are certain colleges that are known in the Jewish community to have a, a large number of Jewish students and Jewish parents are often more likely to tell their kids to apply, you know, to, you know, Barnard College and it's not that the Barnard admissions, admissions department is, is, is um, racially or ethnically rigging their admissions. It's just that a culture of, of, of a school being um, heavily black or heavily Jewish or heavily anything can be sustained over years simply by people knowing that that's what the culture is, right? And I'm fine with, you know, people choosing to uh, go to schools that they feel fit with their own cultural desires. I, I think there's nothing at all wrong with that. So yeah, in general, I would say I, there's there's no contest between race blindness and 
the existence of schools that are known to sustain a particular culture and that sustain that culture through through the choices of you know thousands of individual over individuals over many years and then the questioner also asks about the dire financial straits that these schools are in so that's something i don't actually know much about and you know i really only know about it through through the controversy of president trump's future act which he signed into law in 2019 previously previously historically black colleges and universities had to ask congress every year for money essentially for aid from the government and every year they would give it and you know we're talking you know 100 million dollars thereabouts right and trump signed into law the future act which made 85 million automatic every year right so so they no longer had to petition congress every year that money became automatic now of course trump spinned this into a lie which was to say that he gave more money to black colleges than Obama did. That actually was not true at all. It's just that he made a similar amount of money, maybe even a slightly smaller amount of money. But effectively, he made the same amount of money that Obama gave automatic instead of colleges having to petition Congress for it every year. So Trump lied about that to try to you know, say he's done more for black people than Obama did. Not out of character for him to lie in that way at all. And then left-leaning media outlets pretty much did everything in their power to downplay what Trump did and to remind us that Trump is still definitely a dyed-in-the-wool white supremacist. And essentially, you know, instead of simply reporting this as a fact of what Trump did, gave a million caveats about how Trump probably wasn't all that involved and... Um, don't worry, Trump is still a racist, basically. Which was annoying because I don't really think it's the job of uh, of news organizations to make sure they surround uh, a, a very plain fact with which with all and only the context that they think is relevant, um, and and with the context of their general opinions about the person in question. So clearly Trump did a small but good thing for historically black colleges and that was basically the story. And you know, Trump spinned it into a story about how he was better for black people than Obama, you know, which was not supported by this move. And then, you know, left media spun it into you know, don't worry this this should not at all affect your our opinion of whether Trump is a racist, it's totally irrelevant and can be discounted, which I also thought was unfair. Okay, so that's that. Okay, question five. Coleman has talked a fair amount about his relationship with his mother. How, if at all, has his relationship with his father informed his worldview? Okay, good question. So... Like most people, my dad's views don't fit neatly into any box. Uh, this is something that's has been commented on on a lot. I think I've heard Ezra Klein talk about this, uh, which is elites score much higher on measures of ideological coherence than non-elites. Which is to say, if you walk up to randos on the street, ask them what they think about politics, ask them twenty questions, you're going to get like a sort of confusing bundle of views. It's going to be like, yeah, I agree with Bernie Sanders about this. I like what Trump said about this. What Hillary said about this is good. That's basically what you're going to get from non-elites. Elites are going to be down the line liberal, down the line conservative, down the line libertarian. My dad is not really down the line any particular ideology. And so, you know, it's hard to say how his worldview has informed mine, uh, I guess I'll say a few things. One is that I was definitely introduced to Thomas Sowell through him. I know Thomas Sowell is someone who he read 
and I think even did a thesis on when he was, uh, when he was an economics major at Howard University. I believe that he did his thesis on, on Thomas Sowell. And so he had a bunch of Sowell books lying around. And that's definitely how I encountered Sowell, just by browsing his bookshelf and, and reading everything that he had and then ultimately buying the rest of Sowell's bibliography. It was also through him that I discovered Christopher Hitchens' writing, which is he's one of the first people I read as a teenager that really piqued my interest about the wider world of writing and political commentary. My dad had the book, God is Not Great. And, and so I think probably it's, it's definitely through him that my, I guess I got my first foray into thinking about topics like the conflict between religion and science and uh, the economics of racial discrimination, um, which is not to say that my dad agrees with a Sowell or a Hitchens down the line either. Um, in general, I think he's, he, he'll be much more closer to the progressive end of the spectrum on something like the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Or, or rather, the you know the 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 way of getting that in corporate America, especially than I am, but I couldn't really say more about it than that without feeling like I'm I'm speaking for him. So I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that's pretty much all I can say about that without actually talking to him. Okay, question six. I could imagine a world where the upsides of bad faith arguments outweigh the downsides. In this world, the average person really does behave better when public health institutions use white lies. The credibility of these institutions is not significantly damaged by these lies. How would you persuade someone that we don't live in such a world? I don't think it's enough to underscore the downsides of bad faith arguments. After all, what are a few white lies if you can save lives with them? Okay, this is a very interesting question. First, I want to flag that the questioner seems to be talking about two subtly different things. One are white lies, and in particular, white lies made by public health institutions. And the other are bad faith arguments in general, which is a wider subset. So it seems the questioner cares more about white lies told by public health institutions and, you know, how do we know we don't live in a world where such lies are actually a net good for society? So I'm going to focus on that aspect of the question. And I I guess there's two aspects of the question. How do we know that, you know, how do we know that white lies, people don't actually behave better when public institutions use white lies? And then how do we know the credibility of these institutions is not significantly damaged by these lies? Well, like, how do we actually know that the public trusts less when you lie, um, when you make white lies, right? So I guess I'll take the second half first. You know, it is possible to measure the level of trust that people have in a particular system. And so I'll include some polls in the description of this episode, but there's one right here, which is the Pew Research Organization polls people and asks them how much they trust in scientists. And you can see there's been a a measurable decline in the amount that the public has, uh, the public trusts medical scientists between 2019 and today. So, I mean, I I can, just to use one, the number of people that trust medical scientists a great deal dropped by nine percentage points between January 2019 and December 2021. I did an informal poll of my own Twitter followers because of this question, and I, I just asked do you trust the CDC more, less, or the same as you did before the pandemic? And approximately 
78% of my followers said that they trust the CDC less. And obviously that's not a scientific poll because my followers are already self-selected for people that might have such views to begin with. I'll say I certainly trust the CDC less than I did before the pandemic. And I, I can... I can back that up with concrete examples of them not just making mistakes, but actually admitting to using white lies essentially to, to manipulate the public's reaction to certain COVID thing. So I, I want to just give a concrete example here. Okay. This is a reason why I trust the CDC less than I did. If you had just asked me before the pandemic, who should fact check any major claim about a new cancer study or vaccines? I would have said certainly the CDC, if anyone should have the last say on whether something is true or or false, right? Whether something is good for the public or not. And I had no reason to believe that the CDC was at all subject to ideological or partisan bias. Then COVID happened, the nation fractured deeply and bitterly over everything having to do with COVID. And certainly once Biden took over and appointed the head of the CDC, I think there, there must have been a palpable sense at the CDC that we cannot, we can't say anything that appears to give a win to the anti-vaxxers and to the right. Th- that's the only way I can explain things such as the following, which I'm, which I'm about to uh, tell you. And I'll include the link to this article as well. So this is a New York Times article from February of this year. The CDC isn't publishing large portions of the COVID data it collects. This whole article read to me like a confession. And it, it was incredible that it didn't get more play because essentially a CDC spokesperson admitted to the New York Times that they had withheld data on the efficacy of vaccines and boosters for young people, right? They released the the data for old people and withheld it for young people. Why, right? Not only that, it, it admits that researchers were basically stunned because they were begging for this information, right? Outside health experts were begging for the CDC to release the information that it had been collecting on the efficacy of vaccines broken down by age because nothing could be more crucial to getting the recommendations right than that. Okay, so quoting the article, quote, the performances of vaccines and boosters, particularly in younger adults, is among the most glaring omissions in data the CDC has made public. Okay. Another quote here. The CDC has been routinely collecting information since the COVID vaccines were first rolled out last year, according to a federal official familiar with the effort. The agency has been reluctant to make those figures public, the official said, because they might be misinterpreted as the vaccines being ineffective. Okay, that's already pretty remarkable. Right. Here's another quote. The CDC is a political organization as much as it is a public health organization, said Samuel Scarpino, the managing director of pathogen surveillance at the Rockefeller Foundation Pandemic Prevention Institute. Okay, so this is a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation Pandemic Prevention saying full stop that the CDC is a political organization as much as it is a public health organization. Then he goes on to say the steps it takes to get something like this released, something like this refers to the data for young people, efficacy data, are often well outside the control of the many scientists that work at the CDC. Some outside public health experts were stunned to hear that this information exists. Okay, so again, reviewing what happened here, CDC has reams of information about how effective vaccines and boosters are for people of all ages. They choose to release only information about how effective the vaccine and boosters are for older people. That information shows that they're very effective, which is true. 
And then months and months and months go by. Researchers wondering why the full information isn't being made available. And a CDC spokesperson essentially says, we didn't release the data about how effective this stuff is for young people because we were afraid it would be misinterpreted as the vaccines being ineffective. Now, what does that actually mean? It means that the data on efficacy wasn't that impressive for young people. That's what it means. If, if it had been more impressive, they would have released it. So they're basically admitting that they curate what they release to the public in order to never give any subset of the anti-vax movement a win, right? Had this data been released, people, people would have looked at it and essentially said, well, it looks like the boosters don't do all that much for young people. And that is the moment the CDC wanted to prevent from happening. That is extremely sinister. That, that's a confession. It's, it's a confession that they are, you know, they're curating the information they give to us so as to not allow certain true conclusions to be drawn, right? The true conclusion that boosters are not all that important for young, healthy people, that, that would appear to be a true conclusion justified by the CDC's own data. And they simply chose to hold on to that so people could not cite the CDC in drawing that true conclusion. Now, it's worth backing up and, and reminding people what the hell the whole point of something like the CDC is, right? We're, we're in this world where we're constantly asked to judge very difficult trade-offs between vaccines, which have rare but significant side effects, uh, trade-offs in simply our time, Right, going somewhere and getting a a, a vaccine dose that has uh, short term unpleasant side effects. You know, you get chills at night. We're we're weighing that on the one hand, and the risk of COVID on the other hand, which is constantly changing from strain to strain. And we're faced with questions such as: Do we get a vaccine? How many do we get? Uh, as a business, I'm faced with the trade off of do I require my workers to get vaccinated? And, um, you know, trading that, trading that off against the fact that some of my workers may not, I may lose some of my employees. Uh, policymakers are asked, you know, you know uh, trading off between slowing down the entire economy and, um, you know, ensuring that customers are vaccinated when they walk into businesses. All of these things are very difficult trade-offs. And the whole point of something like the CDC is to give a really empirically airtight, expert-backed opinion on the empirics and to convey that in plain English as much as is possible so that the public and policymakers and all of us can make informed decisions about our health. That's the entire point. That is a job you simply can't do if the CDC has already decided that certain conclusions are off limits before they've looked at the data, right? Before they looked at the data, they came to the conclusions that boosters have to be effective for everyone, right? They decided that before the data was in. And so when the data came in, they just didn't release it, right? Like the, the fact that they're even thinking that way. Is, is really sinister because, again, these vaccines have, have, have side effects, right? And, and that's part of the trade-off we're, we're, we're talking about here. If they're not necessary for young people, um, if, they're, if, you're, if your whole business, if you run a business and you only employ young people, you have to decide whether to force everyone to get boosted or not. This kind of thing is very important, right? And let's remember... France and Germany, they started recommending Pfizer instead of Moderna because for young men in particular, the myocarditis rates for Moderna were high enough to be of some concern, right? And so there is a downside to prescribing unneeded medicine. There's always a downside to prescribing unneeded medicine. 
And the CDC should be just as interested in those downsides as it is in the downsides of COVID. It's the CDC's job to weigh these trade-offs for us. And if, if they, they just decide, they, they basically decide to stop being an empirically driven organization and to start being an ideological and political organization. And there are countless examples of, of this. You know, someone like Vinay, Vinay Prasad has been just cataloging all of the, some of them seem like honest mistakes made by the CDC and others just seem like, like a commitment to never giving anti-vaxxers even a small win over the truth, right? It would be trivially easy for the CD to say, vaccines are safe, safe and effective. Here's an asterisk about when they're not, right? We're going to recommend men under 30 get Pfizer over Moderna, just like France and Germany. Um, we're going to just like they did, you know, J&J, blood clot problem, right? Overall, vaccines safe, safe and effective, asterisks for when they're not, so that people don't recommend unneeded vaccines to subpopulations and, and, and all the rest. It would have been trivially easy for them to do that if they weren't so committed to never giving the anti-vaxxers a win. And it's not their job to think about politics and, and and that sort of thing but it's it it's so clear that they that they have been which has led me to trust them less right i know if if there is any truth even to one tiny corner of an anti-vax arg, arg, argument they're not going to say it so so how can i trust that they're telling me the whole truth right this is when you have to start doing your own research. Um, in any event, that's the reason why I trust the CDC less than I did several years ago. And the general idea that the CDC could do things like this and not suffer a deficit in public trust that seems very unlikely to me. I mean, it, it's it's countered just by the fact that this this kind of thing has led to an actual uh, diminishment in public trust, and and once again, you know, how could it be possible that we live in a world where this kind of a white lie would lead to good results? Well, we'd have to live in a world where people were people were dumb enough to not be able to evaluate trade-offs and the CDC was smart enough to know just how to manipulate the dumb public into making certain trade-offs and uh, in, into making certain decisions. And um, yeah, I really don't think we live in that world. I think we live in a world where people are decent at evaluating trade-offs in their own lives when there's lots of their own skin in the game. And pretty much no one outside of them is usually better equipped in general to navigate those trade-offs better reliably. And, and we certainly live in a world where trust is earned and is difficult to earn back once lost. So that's what I would say to that question. Today's sponsor is 80,000 hours. You have 80,000 hours in your career. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for 40 years. That's a lot of time. And it means that your career is probably the biggest opportunity you have to make a positive impact on the world. But career planning can be overwhelming, especially if you care about making a positive impact. So how do you know what actually matters when it comes to having a high impact and fulfilling career? If you want advice that's based on evidence and careful research, check out 80,000 Hours. They're a nonprofit that aims to help people have a positive impact with their career. 80,000 Hours provides free research and support to help you find a career tackling one of the world's most pressing problems. If you're starting out with your career and not sure what to do, looking to make a change in direction mid-career, or you just want to help solve pressing global problems from your current job, 80,000 Hours can help. 
Join their free newsletter and they'll send you an in-depth guide that helps you learn about what makes for a high-impact career, get new ideas for impactful paths, and then make a new plan based on what you've learned. 80,000 Hours also hosts a job board with nearly 1,000 currently open high-impact career opportunities. Or, if you've got some ideas already, they offer free one-on-one advice to help you switch paths. There's also the 80,000 Hours podcast, which hosts unusually in-depth conversations with experts about how to best tackle pressing global problems. You can check it out on your preferred podcast platforms. If you join the newsletter now, you'll get a free copy of their in-depth career guide sent to your inbox. Just sign up at 80,000hours.org slash Coleman. And just to be clear, they're a nonprofit and everything they provide is free. They're completely philanthropically funded and their only goal is to help you find a fulfilling, high-impact career. To get started planning a career that works on one of the world's most pressing problems, sign up now at 80,000hours.org slash Coleman. Once again, that's 80,000hours.org slash Coleman. Okay. What do you see as the biggest flaws of both the left and the right? And what could be done to address those? Okay, that's an interesting question. I guess I could, I could start specific and get more general. To me, the specific problem with the right is right at this moment is the part of the right that won't admit Trump lost the election, that basically won't commit to the pre-Trump rules of the game, which is that when you lose an election, you lose. And that's, you know, that is more important than any particular policy, right? Maintaining American democracy is more important than any particular policy. And and basically to restore the the pre-Trump norms of the Republican Party. I'm I'm fine for Republicans to look at the parts of Trump that really did appeal to more people, the policies he endorsed, and to absorb those policies without absorbing his general attitude towards winning at all costs, pressure testing American democracy and all the rest. So so to me the 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 acute problem with with the right is Trump's influence on it and the fact that Trump was so successful that I fear many Republicans may simply try to emulate him including the worst parts of him. The problem with the left I think is basically capitulating to wokeness. I think Biden was elected on in my opinion, on the premise that people wanted an an adult in charge and they also wanted a moderate Democrat in charge, a Democrat that was willing to say no to woke race and gender ideology, basically. And in my estimation, Biden has really not managed to stand up to to the woke fringe as much as many of us hoped he would um so i guess that that i would say are the the acute the sort of short term problems with the left and the right as I, as i see him big picture i think the right the right has very little energy directed towards solving the real problems that America faces. The the right on the right you're you're less likely to find you know like a policy task force that has the big solution to this problem. Whatever this problem is, whether it be mass shootings, whether it be racial inequality, whether whether it be whatever, there is less energy directed at we got to solve this problem, here's the solution. There's little of that and relative to the left, at least. And therefore, what happens is when people come to care about a big problem, most of the people with ideas to solve them are center, left, or far left. 
the right is not competing with the left in terms of the problem solving game, right? Like the, the proposing solutions to big problems. Okay. So what's the, what's the left's big picture problem? The left's big picture problem is that Mm -hmm. it has lots of seeming energy to solve all of these problems, but routinely chooses ideology over evidence and therefore proposes solutions that are either pointless and don't address the problems, but make people feel good, or in fact, make the problems worse. Defund the police is a classic example. The right really didn't have much energy or, or, or any ideas, very many ideas over how to solve a problem like uh, racial profiling or excessive use of force. The left had all these ideas, most of which would make would precisely make black Americans worse off, like defund the police. I, I've said it a million times on this podcast, but you know, 80% of black Americans either want the same or more police presence in their neighborhoods, leaving only 20% of black Americans with the position that BLM wants to think all black Americans have. And that, that's because the police are the number one deterrent to crime, which overwhelmingly falls on black people. So yeah, I mean, big picture, I would say the, the right, the right needs to get in the pro, into the proactive problem solving game as much as the left is. And the left needs to stop being so taken in by woke ideology and direct all of its desire to change the world and to better the country into an, an unbiased, empirical look at how such problems could actually be solved. So I'll leave the Q&A there. I hope you guys enjoy this one and see you next time. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.